Hey, how you doing? This is Steve Thompson, and today we are reading Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 28. Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, Honor your mother and father, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents. And so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you've offended the Pharisees by what you just said? Jesus replied, Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted, so ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes out into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him, pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all her begging. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep the people of Israel. But she came and worshiped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath the master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. Can you imagine hearing those words from Jesus? Your faith is great. Your request is granted. Man, what would it mean to hear those from Jesus himself? And what did it look like for this woman to have so much faith that Jesus apparently changes his mind and gives her exactly what she was asking for, a miraculous deliverance and healing? I'm going to turn to those questions in a minute, but I want to highlight a few things in this narrative that I think are worth pondering. In this passage, Jesus is straight up combative with the Pharisees. And then in the following conversation with this woman, he comes across as rude and uncaring. 
So let me get this straight, Jesus. You're the personification, the embodiment of our Father God's love for this world, and yet you're being combative and rude. Why? What's going on here? Well, I'm going to chalk up Jesus's interaction with the Pharisees as pretty standard. We've seen it before, especially in Matthew. He's clearly angry that the people who are supposed to be leading God's family toward their heavenly father are actually leading them away and they don't even recognize it. So clearly he's going to have some tough exchanges with them. But this woman, what did she do? Why is she getting treated so coldly? So here's where scholars try to dive deep into the context of what the Jewish culture was like in first century Palestine. Are there reasons why Jesus might not be coming across as rude in his culture like it looks like from our cultural perspective? What's the history here? What's the meaning of the Greek words that Matthew uses here? What is Matthew trying to convey to the original readers? And that's where even after a ton of research, we can come up with a pretty rich diversity of explanations and possibilities for what Jesus is doing. I can't offer you any conclusive, definitive answers here. I would love to, uh, and I'd encourage you to do some more reading on your own. But I do want to just share a few observations and perspectives that help me in this passage, and I hope they help you. It's pretty intriguing that Jesus has essentially taken a retreat to Tyre and Sidon, a Gentile land possibly to get away from the mounting pressure, the tactics of the Pharisees who are traveling from Jerusalem now, aka headquarters, to test and challenge him. And so if he's in non-Judean territory, he's not surprised to be surrounded by non-Jewish people. Then there's this huge red flag where Matthew chooses to use the word Canaanite to describe this lady. Now, our translation chose to simply go with the word Gentile, uh, possibly because the translators thought the difference uh, would be too difficult to explain, or it might be confusing for us English readers, uh, which is probably true. But this is the only time the word Canaanite is used in the entire New Testament, which makes it kind of significant. Now, when Mark tells this very same story, he describes the woman as Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. Canaanites had ceased to exist as a nationality or an ethnic title centuries before. So Matthew is wanting to highlight to his Jewish audience some historical realities that informed this interaction. It would be worth our time to look into those things. But because of that historical backdrop of the, of, the, of the tensions that existed and the awkwardness of this interaction, it's also quite surprising that she calls him Lord and son of David. She didn't say rabbi or teacher like the Pharisees did, and not whatever you'd expect a Gentile to say at all, but exactly what the disciples, his closest friends and followers, called him and believed him to be. Now, what about Jesus? Only coming to the res rescue the lost sheep of Israel? Like, wasn't he for the whole world? Well, of course he was. But God's intent from the beginning has been to use this particular group of people to be the vehicle through which he would give birth to a new, all-inclusive global family. Now, this doesn't mean he was going to discard the old family as useless. He was expanding his family. Not before inviting and reminding every last Israelite of their invitation and their mission. 
Again, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience and he needs them to connect their identity as a people together with God's purposes. And far from ostracizing outsiders, Matthew consistently makes a point that things have been going beyond them the entire time. You go back to the first chapter, the genealogy. Matthew makes it painfully clear that God has been expanding this family from the beginning. Okay, so what about this dog reference? Like that seems super insulting. And this one can be super tough for us to see beyond our own sins and sordid, complicated history with racism. This is where our cultural lenses that we don't even know we were wearing suddenly become painfully obvious. Most of the time, we actually don't recognize the weight of our own experience and worldview that we bring to the text and we impose on Jesus and these first century writers. What I can say is that the Greek word for dog here is not the traditional Jewish epithet for street dog, the insult. It's the word for a house pet. Not by any means a Jewish value, by the way. They did not bring dogs in as pets. But, and Jewish had a strong distaste for those. But the Greek mindset had a more tender domestic view of dogs. And you can almost see the two cultural views of an animal that they both experienced, Jewish and Greek, but they experienced them differently being played out in this exchange. And this is more like the Greek word for puppy. Now, that doesn't lessen it as like possibly offensive. It might be, but it, it definitely wasn't the slur that was probably used harshly by religious leaders. What we can affirm, though, both because of Matthew's consistent portrayal, as well as the backdrop of all the other New Testament writers, Jesus would not in any way, shape or form be revealing a heart of impurity with his words. He isn't giving us an object lesson in what he just flamed the Pharisees for not having or understanding. We don't have to doubt Jesus's character and motives in this exchange. In fact, the eyes of faith deeply know Jesus's heart and character. And so we're moved to ask for things that we know are good and completely in line with his authority and his reign. And that's exactly what this sweet woman saw and did. I wish I knew her name so we could call her more than this woman. I mean, clearly they all got to know her better since they found out where she lived and what happened to her daughter, but this is who we know her as. What both Jesus and Matthew want to highlight, though, is that this woman is the exact opposite of what the Pharisees were. In fact, it's the opposite of what the disciples demonstrated, too. He routinely called them out for their lack of faith. And yet this woman, her faith is great. This woman who would be by tradition be ostracized illustrates the character qualities and motives of a clean heart. This woman was not a bother. She was the personification of the very faith that Jesus was calling his Jewish brothers and sisters to seize a hold of. I would not at all be surprised that Jesus was only too happy to call that out of her in order to elevate her in front of all his Jewish friends. Maybe that's what's happening. I also can imagine Jesus barely able to contain his excitement to free her daughter from the spiritual and physical bondage and oppression that she had been living with in order to give her a brand new life and freedom. Like, that's the Jesus that we've come to know at this point in the text, right? I think now for me personally, 
this has been an encouragement, a challenge, an invitation, all of these things to continue asking for what Jesus is teaching us is truly good, profoundly powerful, and completely in line with what God wants to do. Even if the timing is off, even if the way I'm wanting it to happen is different than how God makes it happen, even if I don't see it happen in my lifetime, clearly none of us have God's perspective on these things. So I ask simply from where I'm at, from my vantage point and from a place of humility, just like this woman modeled. And I dare to ask things that may even seem ridiculous, but that I know will ultimately be true at some point in the future, if not sooner rather than later. So why not true now? Why not ask now? Jesus, would you heal my child of this disease or disability? Jesus, would you free my spouse from their addiction? Jesus, would you break down these seductive strongholds and idols that are oppressing our community, that are trapping our community or keeping us lulled into a sense of mediocrity? Jesus, would you replace the proud, self-righteous attitude in our nation with a humble and self-sacrificing, submitted heart posture? Jesus, Would you end war in our time, stamp out both the unjust power grabs that we see on the other side of the planet, as well as the greed-filled war machine that our own nation perpetuates? These are all massively faith-filled prayers that align with Jesus' kingdom. And when I think back to the visual image that Laura Bulgreen shared a couple of weeks ago of a lake that is barely disturbed by one drop of rain. But when that one drop is joined by a slow drizzle, which then gives way to a torrential downpour, the entire surface of the lake is alive and boiling with the energy of the heavens. And so, gracious Heavenly Dad, we join our prayers and heart cries with countless others, asking that you would do the impossible in our lives, and in our world. We long for you, your presence, and your power to fully reign in and around us today. Come, Holy Spirit, as we all continue our conversations with you now. Our ears, our hearts, and our hands are open to you. Amen.